I had no desire to date my first year. <laughs> um, I had no desire to be anywhere near other people. I was extremely horny. Welcome to Cringe Watchers, a podcast where we invite our expert friends to binge watch TV and talk about sex. I'm Lori Edelman. And I'm Layla Darabi. This episode, we talked to Danielle Chalakian and asked, what is it about sobriety that makes you unbearably horny? Yes, a great topic for this week. I'm so excited to dig into this with everyone. And speaking of sobriety, we got high off life this week. We just attended the On Air Fest together at the White Hotel in Brooklyn, New York. If you follow us on Instagram, you saw all the photos from that event. It was so much fun to be among podcasting greats, including friend of the show Brittany Luce of For Colored Nerds, Simone Polinen of Not Past It, Kalalia of The New Yorker, WNYC, and so many more. Others from Radiotopia, Serial, it goes on and on. We want to give a special shout out to our fellow indie duo that we hung with during the event, the Hyrule Podcasters. Ben, we hope your marathon went well. And yeah, we just really had a ball and learned so much. It felt great to be out in our podcasting community, and we hope that you all will be able to experience the benefits of our continued learning. But that is not what we're here to talk about today. What we are here to talk about today is sobriety and horniness. So Layla, I have a question for you. Have you noticed yourself drinking more during the pandemic? Definitely. <laughs> I know so few people who would not say the same. And uh, it's definitely something not only have I experienced, but I find myself talking about with you and with other friends, because I think we've all noticed that. And I know that as someone with uh, a family full of addicts uh, of, of various uh, persuasions, I've always been really hyper conscious of my own use of any substance and always am on high alert for anything that that could feel like a dependence. And uh, and so I've, I've really have been reflecting on how to drink less lately. I think a lot of my friends are, tonight I'm going to dinner and I asked, what could I bring to my friend? And she said, if you want to drink, bring something, but I'm not drinking. And I feel like that more and more is what what's happening. People are abstaining. So anyway, that's, that's a long answer. I will say that when New York made cocktails to go a thing, I was totally on board and I really stocked up and I found myself uh, just really drinking midweek, sometimes midday cocktails and having uh, a little fest at home to to forget the pandemic outside. And I don't know, was that your experience? Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I mean, a lot of what you're saying resonates. Personally, I noticed that I had less like nights out or instances where I felt like, oh, well, I actually had too much to drink or, you know, it could have been considered even a binge drinking. So I did less of that during the pandemic because I wasn't going out. <laughs> but I did start to have like a nightly glass of wine like every day. <laughs> and it felt like a more urgent glass of wine, like it was less of a want and more of a need than it had been um, in the past. So it was very much giving like wine mom, which the fact that that exists as a term is gendered and we will get into all of this. But I also kind of I started leaning in to weed gummies. And I will say I think 
this should be the only correct application of the turn lean in. So thank you, Cheryl Sandberg. Um, <laughs> but, you know, all of this made me realize that, you know, there is just a lot of gendered elements to drinking and doing drugs that I hadn't really spent a lot of time exploring. And so that's what we got into today with our guest. And one thing that I think we, like I wanted to set up with you, Layla, before we share the interview is a some of these topics are really delicate. Um, so folks out there who get like easily triggered around discussions of like mental health, um, drinking, uh, sobriety, wellness issues, please know that like we are diving into a lot of those topics. But we also talk a lot about like the stigma and the shame that come around both discussions of drinking and discussions of sobriety. So like, for example, Layla, have you ever been served one of these Instagram ads about sobriety or like these sober drinks that are supposed to mimic cocktails, but are actually like low alcohol or zero alcohol? I've definitely been marketed low cal and low carb alcohol. And beyond those kinds of ads, I've also noticed lately, you know, I get a lot of fitness influencers pushed at me through Instagram and TikTok, probably based on my own searches for how to be a healthier person. And there's this trend of people who state that they're anti-diet culture, but in the same breath will tell you what you should be eliminating from your life to look sexy. Yes, exactly. It's so frustrating. Yeah, it's really infuriating. And I think on our very first episode ever, we talked about the hypocrisy of athleisure marketing, yes. telling women that we would be empowered if we were more sporty, but that also we should lift it up, tuck it in, suck it in, exactly. keep it all under the wraps of spandex. And I feel like this whole brand of marketing is the same thing. It's like, have that drink, but don't get fat. Exactly. <laughs> totally. Like a lot of these ads boil down to use our product to stop drinking because it's making you fat and or ugly or both. And that kind of messaging is harmful on multiple levels. Like there's that initial level of like, oh, I've just been body shamed or fat shamed or whatever. But it also like adds to this overall judginess that I can sometimes experience from like the sobriety community, to be totally honest, and makes me sort of more resistant to ideas and messages that frankly, I'd probably would be really interested in just in terms of what they're bringing and, and what my own desire for like wellness and fitness might naturally help me find. So we actually spoke to Danielle about this and she, she gets into some of the ways that like for-profit companies um, that are focused on sobriety, like are not her favorite. And that was one of my favorite parts of our interview. But we just wanted to set this up for you all because we discussed the show's single drunk female with Danielle. And it was a really intense conversation. This show is pretty intense, even though it's also trying to be comedic and it has hot actors getting involved in the show, but it's dealing with some pretty um, heavy issues. And so we focused on season one, which there's only one season out so far, um, the fifth episode, which is called Sober for the DNV. And this episode features the main character of the show, whose name is Sam, trying to get laid while sober. And the implication in the show is that in the past, she's had a lot of alcohol-driven sex that really she doesn't necessarily remember or where she wasn't particularly embodied, let's say. And Layla, I don't know what you thought, but I thought there were a lot of interesting parallels between Sam's experiences and that those of our guest, Danielle. 
Yeah, definitely. I I mean, one of the one of the reasons that we got Danielle uh, roped her in is because, you know, Danielle's someone I've known for a long time since she interned at Planned Parenthood and uh, has now gone on to be a pretty well-known uh, writer and a feminist thinker. And she tweeted an article about the unbearable horniness of sobriety. I had just watched this episode of Single Drunk Female, and the parallel was very crystal in my clear in my head, but also... One of the reasons we wanted to talk to Danielle is because this is a 22 minute episode TV show that is very frilly in some ways. And uh, we wanted to get into it. And, and Danielle was so generous in sharing her personal experience, which is, I have to stress, really fresh and really raw. And it was it was such a privilege to to hear from her and to be able to ask questions. I might be embarrassed to ask someone else about what's it all like, because, you know, we're, we're sitting here only half joking about like, do we drink too much? But it's not a flip topic. It, and that's something that's very hard to determine in your own life. And I've just really admired how Danielle has not only reflected on that, but through her Jezebel articles in particular, and her Twitter has helped us all reflect alongside her. Totally. And so much on the relationship between alcohol and sex and sexuality, and how so many, especially, you know, women, queer folks, um, we're taught so much shame and stigma around our sexuality. And some of us end up utilizing drugs and alcohol to overcome some of that um, in our sexual lives. And so I think we started to unpack a lot of that with her. And I just really, I hope folks really enjoy this interview with Danielle as much as we did. Danielle, welcome to Cringe Watchers. We are so happy to have you here. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Absolutely. And I am going to be honest that I was a little bit nervous about today's conversation. It can be hard to have conversations about sobriety between people who are and aren't sober. Like, that's a thing. It's tough. And I wondered if you could just, like, start by sharing with our listeners, why did you decide to become sober during a global pandemic? Because anecdotally, like, my friend group did something like the opposite. Um, there was a lot of talk about like wine and weed gummies <laughs> um, and you had a different experience. So wondering if you could share that um, with your, the cringe watchers. Yeah, for sure. So I, um, I've been having a, a really hard time for about five years leading, you know, before the pandemic. And I was sort of in the process of getting my, myself into a better place, hopefully when the pandemic happened, it threw me for a real loop. You know, all the things that I had been kind of like piecing together to to help me get better. I was going to exercise classes every day because it forced me to leave the house and it made me be around other people and it was physical activity. And I was in a clinical trial for treatment resistant depression. And, you know, I was, I was trying to be sober. All of that obviously went away because everything went away um, and we weren't supposed to leave the house. And as somebody with really bad anxiety and a tendency to sort of like feel like everything is my fault and I'm, you know, the arrogantly the world's hugest piece of shit, you know, like <laughs> I reacted very badly. Obviously in hindsight, it's like, I mean, it was a global pandemic. I'm sure everyone had a hard time, but I just felt like everyone else was okay and that I was just going to die. Um, and I was really lucky I got to go to treatment. I mean, a huge part of, I think, what kept me sober in the early part when it was really hard was that I felt like there was this investment in my sobriety that 
I knew a lot of other people deserved but couldn't get. And so, you know, I got 45 days staying in this safe place with other addicts who were really struggling. And then I got 60 days in a sober house. I guess something that was hard for me was because I had I my mental health problems were so really held like primacy for me in terms of like what my issue was. It didn't really occur to me that like my addictive behaviors could be a first step. But then seeing that if I wasn't drinking, if I wasn't doing drugs, I kind of had a fighting chance at figuring out what was going on in my brain and in my body because I wasn't muddying it. It was sort of like treating myself like a science experiment and trying to take out all of the like confounding factors. And so that helped a lot. And I think, you know, in some ways it's really hard to get sober in a pandemic because all of the normal things that people rely on to get sober, like showing up at meetings and getting coffee and, you know, wasn't really an option. But meetings were went on Zoom so quickly and were like handled so well that it also meant that like I never really had to leave the house. <laughs> and so I could have this like really ugly, gross, ungraceful first year of sobriety and also still form connections and bonds and um, specifically with sober people. And, you know, now I'm at a point where one of my best friends, a woman I talk to every single day, is a nurse in Maine who I've never met in person. But we've been talking every single day for a year, and or more than a year now. Um, and she's like one of the most important people in my world. So, And there's a ton of other people like her too, and I'm like really lucky for that. But yeah, it was sort of like a do or die thing. Like I think the alternative for me to getting sober in the pandemic would have been not making it through the pandemic. Mm. Yeah. First of all, congratulations on, uh, I'm assuming if you're talking to someone every day more than a year, that means you're more than a year sober. I got 22 months last week. Wow. wow. That's amazing. Wow. Congratulations. That's yeah. huge. Thank you. Yeah, it feels really good. But well, we all met through feminist circles. One, mm -hmm. of, one of the things that the show that we watched, I think, is touching on and that a lot of people are talking about is what are the specific challenges for women of becoming sober? Have you read Quit Like a Woman? R Lori and I were, were recently reading uh, Holly Whitaker's opinion piece in the New York Times in preparation to, for talking to you, talking about how patriarchal the world is. She was talking specifically about AA, but just in general how, as a woman, the common narrative for how one becomes sober isn't really tailored to you. Has, has that been your experience? It hasn't. I have a very different experience than Holly does, and I am not a huge fan personally of for-profit approaches to getting sober. So like quit coaches and membership organizations that require payment sort of rub me the wrong way, but that is partly because I'm an adherent of the free beverage program. And, you know, my feeling about I mean, I, I told you guys this before we started. Normally, I wouldn't really talk directly about AA because we're talking about a TV show that does directly depict AA. I'm going to suspend that a little bit with the caveat that um, obviously I'm not a spokesperson for AA. There are no spokespeople for AA. One of the things I really like about AA is the fact that there is no one in charge and there are no spokespeople. And so my experience of it has been that it is 
I get to make it what I need it to be. And so if I go to a meeting that's not a good meeting for me, I find a different meeting. Or I pull some friends together and say, do you guys want to start a meeting? And we'll do it on Tuesday nights. Also, you know, I'm a feminist. I'm a leftist. Um, I've got fairly radical politics. And one of the cool things for me in getting to know the program is how sort of anarchist it is in that all of the decisions, because there is no hierarchy and there is no real power structure, like I would never want to say that there aren't patriarchal elements in it. Obviously, it was, you know, initially started by two white men in you know the 1930s. But I have found it to be a space where I think by virtue of the diversity of people who experience addiction, I really have a lot of faith that it will always lean toward becoming more open and more accessible and more welcoming. Because that's the fundamental point is to be a place where people can find connection. All people. I have never thought about AA and Occupy Wall Street in the same breath. But as you were describing the anarchist lack of leader, no one is a spokesperson. I thought that sounds so much like a critique of Occupy Wall Street. Yeah, well, it, I mean, and it's funny because there's like the people who are kind of good at, I mean, not that anyone's like good at a business meeting necessarily, but like who I think I don't have the patience for most of the time. That's really interesting. And so I'm curious then in terms of the show we're discussing today, single drunk female, did you feel like their depictions of sobriety and specifically these meetings matched up with your experiences and like, especially some of the rules about dating and celibacy while getting sober? You know, at one point, Sam on the show is six months sober and James says, well, you're actually off limits until you have a year. We can't hook up. Like, did all of those experiences resonate with you? Well, so I really love, who is it who plays the sponsor? Olivia, is Olivia the sponsor? I think there's like some point where she says something like about how like they're not rules, they're just suggestions or something like that. They don't actually do it as much as I would expect for if you were kind of trying to market a show towards people in recovery, because there are so many like slogans and catchphrases in, in certain recovery communities that would be very easily identifiable. I think the like, don't date your first year. I, you know, am kind of a nerd. And I think I did follow these rules very clinically. Like even when I came up here, I was maybe nine months with this small town that I live in now. I was you know, nine months sober or something like that. And I just came to visit friends and it wasn't supposed to be a big deal. I just never left. And so <laughs> it ended up being a big deal. But the not dating thing, I thought it was interesting how they had James talk about them being in different places because I think that can be very significant. You know, there's, um, I think emotionally, probably uh, a large amount of space between six months sober and I don't even know if he's said where he's at, but, you know, whether it's a year or a year and a half, I had no desire to date my first year. <laughs> um, I had no desire to be anywhere near other people. I was extremely horny as <laughs> I've written an essay about that you guys read. But the idea of actually having to, like, communicate with another person seemed absolutely psychotically unappealing. And actually, one of the parts that I really love in that episode is, you know, when he says that to her and he's like, we can't 
do this. And she's kind of doubled over and she's like, I can feel the rejection. (laughs) And I think that was like such a phobia for me of like, I don't want to know what that feels like when you don't have any kind of cushion between you and your feelings. Yeah, I mean, as as you said, uh, you you've written an incredible piece called "The Unbearable Horniness of Getting Sober," which uh, which led me and Laurie to to get in touch. I've of course been following you on Twitter for for many years, and and recently since you wrote your first sobriety piece in, in Jezebel, I got sober in the pandemic. It saved my life, and I mean, one of the first things I was thinking about because obviously you wrote this piece recently, and you're saying you're you're coming up on two years. In the show, Samantha's just hit six months. Uh, But still, there's a lot of conversation about that pivot between survival and then suddenly being aware of all your other bodily needs. So when did that happen for you? And do you think in general how they're depicting Samantha's um, experience is accurate? Is it too soon? I wouldn't say that it's too soon just because I think it's different for everyone. But I did like the sponsor's note about, you know, your body is just waking up. And that line about like, you've always been in a threesome with alcohol and whoever you were with. Yeah. Like those two things really resonated for me. And I think for me, it was just, you know, it took a year. It took coming up here, honestly. And the earlier essay you referenced about getting sober in the pandemic, I wrote about the friends who let me stay with them up here. And I think for me, a big part of it was like being someplace where I got to feel safe and supported. And like, it was okay to start trying to figure out how I was going to rejoin the world. And I got this job bartending and yeah, I just remember, you know, coming home. And I think I, I wrote about this in the horny essay, but, you know, declaring to my friends, I'm going to have a crush on this guy at the restaurant. And they were like, okay, you know, and it was, (laughs) but it did feel like that sort of like my, that sense of like, oh, my body just kind of like woke up and was like, girl, go out and get some. Like, it's been a really disgustingly long time. (laughs) So this is Cringe Watchers. We need to talk about some of the cringy moments in this show. And you're reminding me of one where like, I could feel it in my body. I was so stressed out. Um, when the main character, Sam, is trying to get laid, she's horny, and she meets up with this guy. She asks him to coffee in the middle of the day. There are some very unrealistic elements of this in the sense that, like, it's Boston. He's, like, a conventionally attractive Black man who works in finance. I'm not convinced that their circles would overlap, but it's fine. She decides, like, ah, good enough, and kind of takes him by surprise, invites herself over to his home to hook up, and they get there. And as soon as she gets to his house, he starts, like, pounding vodka shots. And that, like, struck me as a very like interesting cringy thing where um, I think throughout this show, there is a lot of depiction of like people who drink as very problematic and like out of control. Like you don't see a lot of drinking in moderation happening, but this especially just like in the middle of the day, pounding a shot of vodka in order to be able to have sex with someone um, kind of like turns her off and freaks her out and makes her leave. Um, especially after he like burps vodka in her face. And it was just one of those cringy moments in the show. I'm curious if 
you've had any similar experiences that you feel comfortable talking about or like if you find it harder to hook up with people who do who are not sober when i got sober i just assumed that everyone else was like a normal healthy drinker um and then i was working as a bartender which is a very easy way to like quickly be like oh whoa like tremendous amount of unchecked alcoholism happening and then that can kind of i think lead to a little bit of a hypervigilance around other people's drinking of like, are you a normal drinker or are you a scary drinker? And sometimes it's not even scary. It's just, I think what ended up happening was like, I would be like, oh, this is tedious. Like, this is boring. You know, one of the first people I decided to have a crush on pretty much right from the jump told me he was an alcoholic and, you know, had tried sobriety, decided it wasn't for him. At some point I found out the longest he'd ever gotten was 10 days which I think early on, like very naively, I was like, oh, well, then he understands sobriety. That's cool for me. Like, he knows what a meeting's like. And like, he, you know, and I thought, this is someone who gets it. And then kind of as time went on, it felt more like, oh, this is someone who really probably for his well-being needs to make a different decision than the one he's making. I mean, it's just none of my business. Like I can't tell someone what to do and I can't get someone sober. And But the main thing that happened, I think that's like relevant to that scene is there was one night where I wanted to hang out with him and he wanted to drink. And I thought, okay, well, let's see what it's like if I stay and hang out while he's drinking. And he got really drunk and started repeating himself a lot. And I would, because I was not drunk, I was like, frankly, like not very kind about it. You know, where I was like, I know that you've told me that before. Or like, I'd cut him off and be like, yeah, you're about to say this. It's because you've said that to me. You've said that exact sentence to me before. Like, don't tell me the same story again, you know? And the kind of thing where I guess probably if I was also drinking, it'd be like, whatever, you know? But because I was so sober, And there was this point where we were like driving, you know, I was obviously the designated driver and I, you know, and he was trying to cajole me to go a different place than I wanted to go to so that we could get more substances or whatever. And I didn't want to, but I also still had this kind of like old way of thinking of like wanting to be like a cool girl, I think. And like, yeah, sure. Like, let's go, you know, pick up drugs or whatever, you know? But then half of me is like, no, I don't want to pick up drugs. Like, I just watched you drink and I want to go home and feed my cat. And like, you know, and also like what an annoying and uncool reason to go home that is. I didn't love that about myself either. (laughs) And like didn't feel sexy or cool being like, but my cat, you know, and I lost my temper with him and in the car and I pulled over and I said, this feels like being in a car with a fucking bear. And like it was, I realized later, like. It can feel like that, I think, when someone's like really an excessive drinker, especially as a woman with a dude, there's this sense of like, Jesus, like if he falls over, like, what am I going to do? You know, or like, no, don't get out of the car. Like, what are you doing, you dummy? And that was, you know, very frustrating. And I think my way of coping with that later was to just say like, okay, I learned my lesson. That was a bad decision I made. Next time, if he wants to drink, I just won't hang out. But I already kind of had an inkling of like, so that means that I'm going to have to negotiate what it feels like to have somebody choose drinking over me and specifically Mm. over having sex with me, Mm. which is like a pretty visceral 
rejection. And even if you kind of know on some level, this is an alcoholic, they're going to choose drinking over everything. It still feels really bad Yeah, to be like, oh, that's more fun than like having sex with me. Yeah. Anything's more fun than having sex with me. That shouldn't, <laughs> like, I feel like that just shouldn't be the case. <laughs> Yeah, I have totally felt that way just on an individual evening yeah. <laughs> where it's like, why don't we go home early? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, and I've, I've negotiated that in relationships, too. I think, you know, when somebody wants to like is maybe more social and wants to go out and have, you know, go to parties and like hang with friends and you're kind of maybe more into them. And you're like, I just want to hang with you, though. Right. There's something about getting sober that can for me, makes me feel a little bit brand new. And like every experience is sort of like the first, you know, having it for the first time. But the nice thing is I went on later to spend time with someone who was very curious to know about like, what it would be like for me if he drank around me and would that be okay? And I sort of tried to like do this, like, again, like whatever my idea of a cool girl move is and be like it's fine it's my thing to figure out like whether or not I like being around you when you're drunk and if I don't that's like my thing to deal with and was a really nice experience to have this person be like well no not really because I want to spend time with you and so if you don't want to spend time with me that is something I need to know about so that I can not do something that would make me less appealing to you Hmm. that's hot yeah yeah it was (laughs) it was very you know, some of what you're describing, I think, does come out in this show. I mean, the show that we're watching, I want to caveat, has like 22-minute episodes. They're very short. It's yeah. it's it's very much for – it It was, I think, one of the biggest releases for uh, whatever original network it was on. And then we all, I think, watched it on Hulu. Uh, so it's it's made for the masses. But some of what you're describing, like everything being new and having to, to relearn a lot of things and, and – to do it so publicly as you've chosen to do in, in these essays, I think does remind me a bit of, of the show. Also the show centers this uh, young woman writer. Right. And so there, there are a bunch of reasons we called you, but one, one thing that has happened since, since I reached out and said, Hey, do you want to talk about this other young woman writer who's uh, airing her, her sobriety story is the times published a different opinion piece about whether or not TV is uh, showing more messy women and are, are female characters becoming messier. And is that what we want to see? And they were, they were comparing like Murphy Brown to Fleabag as a, as a spectrum. So they had they had a chart where at the top of the chart, uh, it was like Khadija from Living Single and Murphy Brown and um, and like Monica Geller from Friends. And then all the way at the bottom uh, were, were people like uh, like Fleabag. And I'm wondering, is it less taboo to air these kinds of stories? And is that what we're interested in as messy women to see the less perfect story aired out? I would need television to show messy women in order to relate to television personally you know like I'm not a Monica Geller I'm not Murphy Brown but I also feel a little defensive of like like in the second season of Fleabag like she's a successful small business owner you know like (laughs) she might be a little messy but like she's getting her life together and I think of her as you know that first season's rough but which season has the Obama masturbation <laughs> that's the first, the first season. season okay okay first yeah. season. all right second season's hot priest <laughs> although um a period of sobriety I think is part of how she gets her shit together yeah I think a lot about this in the context of like so 
one of my com my probably my chief comfort show is New Girl. And when it aired, I was like pretty consistently either like the same age or a little bit younger than the characters. And I just really loved seeing these people my age who like still had roommates who were losing jobs, getting laid off, having to find new jobs, having to figure out, is this even still what I want to be doing? What am I doing? None of them were buying homes or getting married in the early years, at least. I mean, I guess it was sort of like a contemporary Friends in some ways, because that was true of the Friends cast as well. But the Friends cast, like, still seemed to have their shit. I mean, people didn't really get laid off or fired as much as I feel like I've been laid off and not quite fired, but laid off um, as a media worker. I don't know. I guess I would have to think about it a little bit more, whether we're, like, skewing towards messy women that my first thought was like Lucille Ball was kind of a shit show, you know. That's true. I have to say that um, your description in your in your first sobriety essay of watching New Girl, the series to completion over and over again and restarting the pilot as soon as you got to the season finale was such an incredible image and something that I have not exactly personally experienced, but just really. Um, it really touched me and I can't describe what it is about. Maybe it's our love of binging. It's like you're seeking escapism, but it's very specific new girl. And I think that's, that's kind of what we're getting at. Like there's gotta be something relatable for something to be that comforting. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I don't know that I could watch like a dystopian show. I actually haven't watched station 11, but something like that, I feel like might not end up being a comfort show necessarily. There was a lot of ink spilled around like, nostalgia during the pandemic like what brought us comfort in the beginning of the pandemic and then like later into the pandemic what made us feel nostalgic for earlier in the pandemic and I think like we started this podcast during the pandemic I think in large part because my television consumption and Layla's television consumption was way up so I don't know that I could say there was one show that I was like watching on loop like that, but I definitely relate to like comfort binging in a way that was like outside of my personality, you know, even three years ago. Um, and, you know, when you when we talk about like what's relatable in a in a female character on a TV show, it's always false because they're always these like idealized types, even of the messy character, right? So like this woman, Sam, like she's conventionally attractive. And she like, I think like Layla, we were just discussing, you described her almost as like a, that manic pixie dream girl vibe. Um, these are all like very attractive actors. And I personally get more messiness from reality shows. Like I watch more reality shows for messiness, but I, I watch these shows for like a chuckle and kind of a, like the sets bring me calm because like all of their rooms, even if they're really messy, like their rooms are so cute. I'm like, their style is so cute. It's sort of like this weird mix of messy and very perfect um, that kind of presses the button for me in a way. And I, I don't know. I think like one thing about this show I wanted to make sure we talk about is just like, again, the the people who drink are the worst people in the show. <laughs> and like, I don't know, I just kind of want to talk about that a little bit more. Like you've had different experiences with people. It sounds like people who drink, people who don't drink, they still are various shades of cool and not cool. Um, and that's, that's probably like what the truth is. But, you know, for me, it, the show did feel like 
a little bit confused about who its audience was for me because it's like, okay, to your point, Danielle, if you're appealing to a sober audience, there could be more in-jokes. There could be less of that gaze. But if you're appealing to a mass audience, like we need some drinkers who can bridge this gap. (laughs) That was kind of like a little bit of my feeling about this show. And my deep ironic confession is that I actually started to really giggle to this show after I took a weed gummy, which I don't know what that means. Yeah. There's definitely, I think, like a lot of focus on her mom's drinking. I wonder if that's part of what you're referencing. Yeah. Like in the most recent episode, there's like a close-up shot on like the mom's boyfriend being like, more for me and like pouring more white wine in his cup, which was like, ugh. I really liked the sort of like redemption story arc with the hairdresser friend who like she thought was like her party girlfriend and then kind of came to realize like no you're the party girlfriend like this is actually just a very good friend and functional person who is able to drink and still operate in the world which I think is more more true you know I mean the friends who I came up here to stay with Part of why I came is because I knew they weren't heavy drinkers, so there wasn't going to be alcohol out a lot. And when I was nine months sober, I was really scared of being around a lot of alcohol. But they they do drink, and there it there actually is alcohol, which I you know became aware of later when it wasn't. Um, I think they were being very kind about where I was at, and drinking's not super important to them, so it didn't matter to them that much. But, you know, one of them, they got married and I drove my friend Sylvia around for her like bachelorette party day and with her friends and everyone drank and they were wonderful. You know, like no one was a horrible drunk. Most people aren't, I think. You know, something that I was more that I was curious that they didn't really show yet is that I think sometimes people will take it personally when a friend gets sober and and they they do kind of have the mom react like that at one point of like some people take it as like a bit of a judgment of like well are you saying I shouldn't drink I also did want to say about the like messy women versus idealized women I think it's very significant that she's like 25 and not 35 yeah I obviously would think that because I'm 35 (laughs) but like there's something a lot like cuter about you know, your life falling apart and getting sober in your 20s than I think there is later on. And a lot of her fear of like, like, am I going to be able to pull myself together? Like, she's still so young. People reinvent themselves over and over at all ages anyway. But that's sort of like a piece of it that I think is a little unsatisfying to me in terms of wanting to see like a wider range of experiences. Then that said, I think the show clearly is I don't know if this is like a free form thing as a network, but trying to show a wide range of experiences. There's a trans character and, you know, the sponsor is an older woman. Ali Sheedy is showing like kind of the experience of a woman trying to find love after losing a long term partner. There's, you know, racially and ethnic ethnically diverse characters in that scene in the coffee shop. The the server was an actress with Down syndrome. I think that's great. Like, I feel like that should be way more normal because, you know, if you want something that's realistic, like the world is full of people who are not just um, 
manic pixie dream girls, fortunately. I mean, I'm willing to believe that the coffee shop employee is realistic, but I think, you know, Lori Lori raised this earlier. I do think the setting of Boston and the kumbaya mixing of all of these uh, different ethnic and and economic backgrounds uh, is it's uh, what's definitely turning on my head, maybe my prejudiced vision of what Boston is like. But even New York, we live in a pretty segregated country. And I think there's a lot of the show is definitely centering the cute white girl who meets all of our manic pixie. She might as well be the new girl, the next generation. It's like, oh, she's so, she's falling on herself, but it's cute. And then everyone around her, it's like almost every relationship we see is an interracial relationship, which is, which is interesting. Not to take away from your point, I just want to point out that like, yeah, the world is that way, but the world isn't that way exactly the way this show is showing it. Right. I mean, I almost like would say I'm happy about it more from like a casting perspective of like, right. good right. thing all those right. different people are getting money right, you know, <laughs> to be on this show. <laughs> But yeah, yes. Boston is a weird setting for a, a racially yeah. diverse group of friends. And I have to say, one of my favorite characters is Mindy, the yeah. the manager at the supermarket, the trans friend um, and, and colleague and co-sober person. I mean, one of the things you're making me think, Danielle, is... To, just to Lori's point, like maybe maybe that we're too early in this series and in Samantha's sobriety story to see better depictions of her hanging out with with non sober people, because it, it it she seems to be in that phase that you're describing where the show is suggesting it would be better for her and she seems to understand or to be saying it'd be better for me to completely avoid all situations with alcohol, and I wasn't sure in in the horny scene where she's hooking up with the with the financial guy who who thought it was a coffee date and wasn't expecting a hookup goes home slams a vodka shot and then he belches in her face and it's unclear it could be an awkward moment but i was interpreting that as that is too close proximity for her to alcohol at that time and it makes her it seems to make her not want to make out with this guy there seem to be many reasons not to make out with that guy but uh but there's there is a very it's very segregated and in terms of sober and non-sober people and it's hard to see a comfortable world where people are just hanging out and it's not the main focal point that one is so Yeah, I or think not. it makes sense kind of like developmentally for where she's at in getting sober. I'll say too about like watching TV, you know, when I was watching things other than New Girl in early sobriety, one of the things that was super striking to me was how because I did a lot of rewatching, which I think was like a normal pandemic activity but was like how many shows I'd watched where I hadn't noticed that like one of the characters was like an astonishingly heavy drinker. Like Lorelai Gilmore, that woman drinks a tremendous amount and like very aggressively. And there were times in early sobriety where I think I was like, you know, I would text someone and be like, I think Lorelai Gilmore is an alcoholic, you know, and like, (laughs) it's possible Lorelai Gilmore is not an alcoholic. But in early sobriety, (laughs) I think there is maybe a sort of sense of like, what is everyone else doing? Um, And I think there is something on television and in movies where like being a fun woman is correlated to being a drinking woman. Yeah. And so fun female characters are often heavy drinkers. Yeah. It's funny because you're saying this, I can only picture her demanding coffee. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, that's what I had thought of too. And then I would watch it and there would just be all these episodes where she's like, oh, I have to deal with my mom. I better get drunk, you know? Right. And I'd be like, I don't know if that's a good thing. You know, like me and my like early recovery brain thinking about how often I use substances in order to like deal with you know, a given life situation thinking like, yeah. I wonder if Lorelai needs therapy more than she needs alcohol. <laughs> I would totally read a listicle or any kind of essay you want to write about outing <laughs> the, the warning signs of yeah, alcoholism in beloved vintage TV. I did want to ask you more about the way they're treating this young woman writer in, in this show and just in society. W- w- one thing that I read in preparation for talking to you is that alcoholism seems to be there are hard stats but more common among journalists in general uh, that is a completely unsurprising fact <laughs> there, there are some studies we'll link to them uh, but beyond alcoholism I think that one of the things that I took away from this show is how dismissive people are around uh, Samantha seem to be about the kind of journalism she's pursuing <laughs> And I don't know what this is supposed to be. Is that like BuzzFeed or <laughs> she's she's definitely her mom is dismissive of the fact that she was writing listicles. Uh, but even the boss that she, who rightfully fires her for attacking him while he's firing her and she runs into him again in a later episode is very condescending about sort of her as a journalist, as a writer. And I'm wondering if, if that uh, if, if you clock that did that trigger anything for you do you think it's the sort of young woman writing from personal experience or uh do do you think that this is a society not valuing the way media is now consumed I mean I think society I think like capital doesn't value media and so you know there's a scene in a later episode where the guy who fires her is like oh yeah, I'm not at Buzz anymore and I'm not at, you know, then I went there, but that place sucked. I went to Douche, I think is the second place. He's like, now I'm at Smug, you know? And it's like very like, okay, yeah, I get it. You're at all the internet startups. But it's also like, I, to me, that points more to the, I think, transient nature of working in media where, Like, yeah, I think if she was a little bit older, she probably would have had an experience being laid off or working at a place that gets, you know, abruptly shut down because the benevolent billionaire running it no longer wants to pay for it, for example, is something that happens. But yeah, I mean, I do think, I mean, people have been dismissive of women writing about their own experience for, you know, as long as pens have existed, probably. Um, There was a tweet I saw recently that was like, justifying why people used to get paid a lot more money to write that was like well you know once computers came around anyone could be a writer you know and I was like all right well I'm definitely in the class of people who are only writers because computers exist so what does that mean like I should just be happy with like getting paid 200 bucks for a story that takes me three days to report and write like that seems not great so all of which is to say I think it is interesting to have the main character be a writer I thought something that I really liked was how she was like, I don't know how to write while drinking without drinking. And then she's like, you know, you take two shots and you open up the computer and then you take two shots and then you take two more shots. And I like kind of wish they had done a little bit more of her realizing like, Oh, I didn't drink and write. I just drank and like sometimes managed to write because I think that's like kind of a common misconception that like, we can all be these like Hunter S. Thompson type journalists who 
you know, get wasted and spin out some glorious essay. And I definitely probably tried to drink or get stoned and like be a productive writer. And I definitely was not. I was like a productive napper and binge watcher and doer of literally anything other than my job. And there is a whole like section of men and male writers who like the Hemingway being the classic example where it's like whiskey and words, you know, I'm gonna like poor masculine, this is what gives me my edge, this is what makes me interesting as a writer, you know, which kind of makes me think, Danielle, but just going back to the beginning of this interview about like your journey and how closely aligned like your mental health and just your healing journey was to sobriety. And you almost described sobriety as just kind of like this thing you had to get through. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but something that you just kind of had to do to get to the work on yourself in a way. And, um, you know, I think there's something to this idea of not necessarily just as a writer, but as any career, you know, ambition to to come into your full self, kind of needing to know yourself, needing to do that work on yourself, needing to kind of like clear the way, whatever that looks like for you. Um, and that's, I wish this show got there a little bit more. It never got there for me. Like, like there were funny little moments and there were interesting kind of rules and situations, but that kind of bigger more interesting point for me never really surfaced in this show. And it felt like a missed opportunity, I guess I would say. Personally, I'm glad because now there's... (laughs) There you go. Hollywood. (laughs) Specifically to impress you, Lori, now that I've had... You'll, you know, be brought on as a supervising consultant. (laughs) And I wonder if it's like what Layla was talking about earlier, if it's like a 22 minute show, which, you know, how much are they really going to be able to show us like a a in-depth human experience? I think they're doing, they're laying the groundwork for some cool stuff with her and her mom that I'm intrigued by. I was going to say, I felt that way about the mom that they, they sort of almost get at something. I, I, I am most affected by media where a daughter is being misunderstood by a mother. The movies I cry at, the books I cry at, it's that relationship where a mother and daughter are butting heads, uh, which is, you know, a carryover from, you know, my own mother calls age 13 to 17 the phase. And I think we were never closer in our lives, but we were definitely at each other's throats for that time. And, and there's something about, I had such high hopes for Ali Sheedy. And I'm, I think I'm also really disappointed in Ali Sheedy in this. Uh, and, and there's just something where, um, I don't know if they're trying to be ironic that, you know, the, the basket case from the breakfast club is now the mother of this new basket case and they just stop there, but I feel like they don't go far enough. The mother is too caricatured and Samantha, Samantha is caricatured, but in a way where she has human moments, uh, and, I, I don't know. I just wish I wish they dug a little deeper in that relationship. Yeah, I'm hopeful that there will be more happening there. I was really curious early on when they were talking about when she was like, I'm in a spiritual book club. I kept I was sort of hoping that it was her weird mom code for being in Al-Anon. But I think it actually makes more sense that she's not yet in Al-Anon. And I'm kind of hoping that she gets there because... I'm not in Al-Anon, so I'm just going to say it's an amazing program. (laughs) And I think she is actually, to me, a very realistic character in terms of 
being a parent of an addict. Um, I was in treatment with people who, you know, their parents were, had a similar vibe to that sort of like, and this is the episode after the one that we're talking about where this really comes out, where she is sort of like ambushes Olivia, the sponsor, um, and it's like, you need to tell, like, she's like trying to control what's going to happen next for her kid because she's so scared after like, you know, and she's like, but I have to protect her. And then there's like kind of an amazing moment where she goes in to be like, you're not going to this job interview. And instead what comes up is Sam's terrified that she can't write anymore. And she like kind of manages to like, in a really mean way. <laughs> say like the right thing kind of of like and like I think it, it's it doesn't feel like the right thing necessarily but from like a big picture view you know it starts off really mean of like what's so great like what have you done that's so great anyway you know listicles or whatever but what she builds up to is like you don't even know what you're capable of yet like you're just at the beginning of who you're gonna end up being and that like really I mean probably for obvious reasons, like hit me very hard of like, yeah, she doesn't know what she's capable of yet. Oh, I think that might be a good place to leave Samantha. Cringe fire. Transition to cringe fire. (laughs) We're trying something a little bit different with this week's ad and sharing our endorsement of another podcast called Shithole Country by Radiotopia. Afia, not her real name because her parents would kill her, has a decision to make. And by God, her family is going to help her figure this shit out. Join Afia in this eight-part podcast series as she forages for guidance in their shared histories. True tales dipped in entrepreneurial dreams, green card anxieties, complicated love, and liberal portions of the world's best jollof during a long-awaited trip to Ghana. We loved the most recent season of this show and are really looking forward to the forthcoming season, which will follow a new story. Check it out now, wherever you find your podcasts. So Danielle, is there another show that you're binging right now? I am really into Abbott Elementary. And then also I went through a thing last year with um, Discovery of Witches and one of my friends is now watching Discovery of Witches. And so I've been sort of like proxy watching it through, you know, her texting me being like, are they ever going to do it? It's like a very chaste, horny show. (laughs) Yeah, it is a very chaste, horny show. And talk about age gaps. It's Mm -hmm. a it's a vampire witch show. But um I, that's so on brand for you because so much can exactly. take place in a library. It's like a real library romance. Even their meet Yeah, and I watched it library. before the library. So, you know, maybe it laid the groundwork before I got the job at the library. Amazing. What is something in the world that you're finding super cringy oh, right now? I mean, other than myself, I would say, I mean, really, it's usually just myself. The Democrats um, in general are good answer drive me insane we'll let that stand um (laughs) sorry no please don't be is there an aspect of sex or sexuality that you would like to see portrayed or better portrayed in tv film or literature i would love more portrayals of sober sex i mean that's one of the things i'm excited about with single drunk female but also in general like figuring out one's sexuality i think is something that especially like late in life stories is something i think I don't see enough of. And do you have a favorite sex scene? Yeah. Have you guys seen Top of the Lake, the Elizabeth Moss detective show? So in the bar, 
she's coming out of the bathroom. He goes in and goes down on her in the bathroom and then walks out. I know it's borderline predatory and weird, but it's super hot. And the guy in it is super hot. And it has been my favorite sex scene since I saw it in like 2017, probably. That's such a good answer. Show about like the little dead girl. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Not a horny show. (laughs) No, I'm I'm intrigued. I I might need to add that one back on the list. Yeah, it is. But yeah, John, the dead girl parts. Right. There's like a hot guy going down on her in a bathroom. I'm sure there's a metaphor there somewhere for something i'm pretty sure i fast forwarded to all the jano scenes after i finished that series i like went back and then watched all the hot parts mm-hmm. <laughs> he's nice. really good love it. daniel Thanks. this was amazing i um we're gonna have to find a show that's like super nitty-gritty into the weeds of new york city politics to have you back because that's oh, yes. the that. other topic that I, you mentioned community boards and i was like oh how can we pivot and just talk about this? <laughs> <laughs> I would love that. Yes, for sure. Love it. And can't wait for your pilot that is about both mother-daughter relationships mm-hmm. and also all the things that I am needing from this show. Yeah. The real version of this show. We're ready. It'll for be the it. first yeah. cringe watchers produced sitcoms. I go. love that. I it's a production company. Yes. <laughs> yeah. As you know, I, I do do background extra work. Exactly. So you're ready. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> nice. Danielle, this was so fun. Thank you. It was so great. Thank you guys. Thank you to our guest, Danielle Chalakian. You can read her words at Jezebel and follow her on Twitter at Danielle IAT. Our editor is Karen Y. Chan. Judith Walker created our logos and cover art. D.L. Dallas Engram created our theme song. And our ad music is by Siddhartha Courses. You can find D.L. on SoundCloud and Siddhartha on Bandcamp. You may have noticed we did not binge or cringe this week. We were trying a new format. Curious if you noticed and missed the segment or you were really relieved to not have to hear us opine on what you love and hate. Give us a shout. Let us know what you think. And as always, you can support the show by visiting patreon.com backslash cringewatchers. We recently crossed a major threshold of 5,000 downloads, and we want to thank everyone who's listening and helped us get there. We so appreciate your support as independent creators. We could not do it without you. If you want to keep in touch with us, you can follow us at cringewatchers on Instagram and Twitter, or drop us an email at cringewatcherspod at gmail.com. As always, thank you for cringe watching with us. <laughs>